This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Lingles, today with Hannah Colton. Racial violence takes a heavy toll in American society. White supremacist beliefs played out in the 2018 anti-Semitic murders of 11 people in a Pittsburgh synagogue. Young black men are killed by police at disproportionately high rates. Racist ideas were believed by many to have been perpetuated by President Trump during his campaign and during his time in office and echoed on social media. And in public discussions of racial violence, the focus is often on people of color, how they suffer, how they don't see the justice they want, what they're doing to try to make change. Well, in this episode of Peace Talks Radio, producer Hannah Colton turns the focus on whiteness and white people. We'll look at how the concept of whiteness came to be in the first place, how it shaped American history, and how it perpetuates systemic injustice and racial violence today. We'll hear some ideas on how to not let our emotions around race and whiteness get in the way of improvement. Later on in the hour, we'll hear some ideas on how to work through the strong emotions around whiteness that often get in the way of anti-racism efforts. First, though, Hannah Colton takes us to an anti-racism workshop that she attended at the Center for Peace and Justice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Are we on the bus? Are we ready? Yes. Yes. Awesome. So where are we? Freedom Miles is a longtime activist and educator in Albuquerque who uses storytelling to facilitate anti-oppression dialogues. At this workshop in October 2018, there were about a dozen of us, about half white folks and half people of color, a wide variety of ethnicities, ages, and gender expressions. We sat on folding chairs in a small meeting hall while Miles set some expectations. So in this workshop, we're going to talk about the creation of whiteness. We're going to talk about how it was developed and how we, in the United States, make sure that it keeps existing, right? We're not gonna talk about India, who has a caste system. We're not gonna talk about Mexico and the colorism that Mexico experiences. We're talking about United States. We're talking about a land that was stolen for Native Americans, a land where human beings were told, you are now fauna and flora, we have to take care of you. You are now property. Who did we say that to? Black people, right? You're property. My cow has more rights than you do. Miles is multiracial and gender nonconforming. Their take on anti-oppression work is intersectional, meaning they try to understand how not only race, but also gender, sexuality, physical abilities, and other factors shape each person's experiences. You'll get a sense of that intersectionality in the excerpts I've included this hour. So we sat in a semicircle, and Miles talked us through the history of whiteness in America. The first way that whiteness asserted its power here, they said, was through biology. Settlers brought smallpox, which killed tens of thousands of indigenous people throughout North and Central America. It was the first time in this continent where being pale meant safety. Where being pale meant power. Where being pale meant your medicine can't get rid of me. But my power can get rid of you. Right? Can we take a moment to understand that? How powerful that is. Of course, settlers asserted the power of whiteness over not only the brown-skinned Native Americans, but also dark-skinned Africans who they brought over as slaves, as property. 
Miles describes the ways that early Americans enforced that power through sexual violence and religion, among other things. And what is the quickest way to eradicate, contrary to what we are told in modern history, what is the quickest way to eradicate a population? You impregnate the woman. Because now their children are my children, right? You're no longer your people. You're my people. So that's what we did. We raped, we conquered, we killed, we brought people who were the darkest people we could find to physically show you that they were inferior. We used the Bible to justify their enslavement. We changed the color of Jesus. The greatest accomplishment that whiteness has ever done is that Jesus went from Middle Eastern to Western European. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that meme with this uh, mm-hmm. Middle Eastern guy going? So there's me, the only white guy in the Middle East. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's Jesus, right? It's like, that's exactly what happened. We'll leave Frida Miles in Albuquerque for the moment. We'll return to hear more throughout the hour, and you can listen to their entire workshop, packed with information and tough questions, on our website, peacetalksradio.com. For now, let's hear from John Bewin. He's the audio director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and he produced the 2017 series Seeing White for his podcast, Seen on Radio. It's a 14-part audio series. Well worth the hours of listening, by the way. And it goes deep into how whiteness was created and functioned throughout American history. Here's the first part of my conversation with journalist and radio producer John Bewin. John, you spend you know, more than half of this Seeing White series diving into the evidence that whiteness is a social construct essentially invented to justify um, the use of violence. And that's a big concept and obviously there's a lot of evidence that people should just go listen to in your in your pieces but what is what's one really compelling piece of evidence that you think people still generally don't know about well i would start with the the way that whiteness the notion of of a group of people being called white where that came from and i think you know there's a tendency to think that it sort of happened naturally that people looked around at one another at some point in the past and just sort of made the observation that some of us have light skin and those people over there have dark skin, so we'll call ourselves white and we'll call those people black and and those people over there, you know, Asian or yellow or, you know, that, that, that this all kind of, this whole notion of race, that it sort of happened organically. And that's just not how it went down. Um, for, for one thing, it's relatively recent. According to Ibram Kendi, who's one of the main uh, experts in our project, um, remarkable historian and race scholar uh, at now at American University, basically uh, whiteness and blackness were invented in the 15th century, in the 1400s, by uh, Portuguese slave traders. And it was basically at the time that, um, you know, there was lots of slavery, lots of people enslaved, lots of people through millennia, and um, people enslaved people who looked different from them, and they enslaved people who looked like them. Uh, And it was not about race for most of human history. But at a time when the the Atlantic slave trade, as we know it, was really starting to kind of take hold, and Europeans were really kind of making this move to say, all right, we're going to start going to sub-Saharan Africa, 
and hauling people out of Africa to work at our sugar plantations and rice plantations and so on, that that was justified on the basis that there was a continent of people that we're going to call black and they are inferior. They're sort of beasts, you know, inferior beasts, and that justifies us. And so we're actually doing them a favor by bringing them to civilization and to Christianity. And that was really where the idea took hold of white people. It was really the invention of black people, but then by implication, as Kendi says, you can't have black people without white people. And this comes from a primary source who was who was a writer at the time, right? Yes, a guy named Gomez de Zurara, uh, who Kendi identifies as the person who first really kind of made this move of lumping together all the people of Africa, very diverse people of Africa, but Zarara lumped them all together and, and basically created the notion of, a, of an inferior black race, and that that happened in, in the 1400s to justify the, the slave trade that was run by the Portuguese aristocracy, basically. And so this justification of sort of working backwards, right, and saying, okay, we've enslaved these other groups of people for our own economic benefit, and now we're going to say it was because they're inferior, because... They look differently. I mean, your series and and the historians and academics that you interview sort of trace how that continued to be the case in various forms, not just you know straight up chattel slavery throughout the centuries. Yes, and and it's an important point made by people like Ibram Kendi and also Nell Irvin Painter, um, Princeton historian, uh, Princeton professor emerita, who wrote the book uh, "The History of White People." that, again, this, this kind of chicken and egg thing, we tend to think, oh, okay, people looked at each other and said, ah, those, those people seem to be kind of barbaric and inferior. So I guess maybe that makes it okay for us to enslave them, to exploit them and, and you know, mistreat them in this way. And their argument is actually it's just the reverse. It was, uh, you know, the decision was made, okay, we, we, we want to get some free labor. Those people are available, so we're going to go grab those people and then we're going to justify it by creating this notion of an inferior black race and a superior white race. So that that is our legacy um, to this day, and, and we are still sort of confused by these ideas, thinking that these ideas about an inferior black race came about um, you know, through observation, when in fact it was absolutely manufactured to justify a system of exploitation and violence. And again, if folks want the full history, right, they have a lot of reading and or listening to do beyond this one hour or half hour program, <laughs> Peace Talks. That's right. But um, <laughs> you spend a lot of time on the different ways in which this uh, justification for violence and mistreatment uh, played out, right? So it played out in who could be a citizen and who could get agricultural loans in who could live where in America. And so the thread continues throughout today. Like, what's your understanding of racial violence in both interpersonal and structural ways? I mean, how has it changed throughout the process of making this series? Yeah, that's, um, you know, let me count the ways, right? I mean, because it takes so many forms. And yes, it's it's the, the brutal, brutal history of, of, of violence uh, in within slavery itself, of course, families ripped apart as well as people just being killed and beaten and punished at will. Um, uh, you know, lynching, 
um, yes, violence by, um, yeah, and, and we talk at one point about a, a, a deep and, and uh, egregious history of white-on-black violence, which we don't hear about. If you think about the, the 400 years that uh, Europeans and African people have been on this continent, um, you know, if, uh, uh, at one point I, I, t- I imagine a, uh, a giant scale in which you, um, if you imagine on one side of the scale um, the bodies of white people killed by black people over the last 400 years in North America, and on the other side the reverse, the bodies of black people killed by white people, of course it's grotesquely out of balance, and white people have committed vastly more violence against black people than the reverse. Uh, in all these forms, but then also, yes, my colleague Chenjerai Kumanyika, who is my collaborator on the project, um, talked about the other kind of more diffuse forms of violence, of just the way that um, inequality uh, and and public policy that that doesn't address the deep inequalities that come from this history of racism and exclusion, how that damages people's lives and shortens people's lives and and leads to, um, you know, to, to troubled neighborhoods where violence is more likely to take hold. Um, so you could just go on and on, right, including all the way up to things like, um, you know, just the fact that uh, there, there are growing studies that suggest that the health problems that come with being particularly black but with being a person of color in this white supremacist society that, that causes stress and high blood pressure and heart disease so it's, yeah, yeah, violence takes many, many forms. I'm curious, did you have a particular audience in mind when you started to produce Seeing White? And, and did your idea about who that audience is change as you continued making the series? Hmm. It's a good question. Yeah, I, I did have to think about that. And, and um, my collaborator, Chenjirai Kumanyika, asked me early on before we started uh, who I thought the audience was. And, you know, of course, the short answer is everybody and anybody, you hope. But, um, and what, you know, and I think what his question was getting at was, am I, you know, am I preaching to the choir? And I think inevitably at some level you are. The people who are going to sit through uh, a seven or eight hour series on the history and mean, meaning of whiteness are are going to be white people who are going to do that are going to tend to be relatively progressive on these issues right open-minded and think of themselves as trying to be uh non-racist and anti-racist but i i very quickly decided that i am totally fine with that because uh you know one person has put it you know there is no choir in a sense when it comes to white people because i think all of us uh are on a journey to try to um, recover from from the racism that that we have, uh, you know, soaked up from 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 our surroundings and from our culture, and so uh, in other yeah, so so people like me, for that matter, um, and other people who I think of uh, who are really trying to not be racist and to to be anti-racist, we all have a lot to learn. And uh, I know that I've learned a great deal, and I've heard from a lot of people who've really white people and people of color, for that matter, who say that they have learned a lot and have a new kind of deepened understanding of how this all works as a result of, of the series. And so, uh, if, you know, if we're talking to 
uh, both white people and people of color who are basically trying to be on a journey of make, making society more just in these ways that I feel like we've, we've still, you know, that's been, I hope, helpful. And, and if we can move people from being sort of passive, uh, not thinking of themselves as non-racists, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm not part of the problem. Um, and that's okay, so I'm just going to go about my life and move some of those people in more into thinking, okay, I've got to do something affirmatively. I've got to, I've got to make some moves and push somehow to change this thing, or it's going to just kind of go on for another generation. Then I feel like we've done something worthwhile. That was Peace Talks producer Hannah Colton speaking with John Bewin who produced the podcast series Seeing White at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. You can listen to more of their conversation at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the November 2018 episode. We're talking about racial violence this hour, and specifically how the construct of whiteness perpetuates that violence. I'm Paul Ingalls, back after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with Hannah Colton. In this hour, we are grappling with the violence of whiteness, as in a social construct that people of Western European descent have used to justify oppressing people of color for hundreds of years. Earlier, we heard from the creator of a podcast called Seeing White. We'll bring him back a little bit later in the hour. That's John Bewin. And we'll hear from a professor of education who's dedicated to helping her mostly white students work through their hang-ups around race. But first, producer Hannah Colton takes us back to the Center for Peace and Justice in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in October of 2018, where she and about a dozen others heard about the creation of whiteness and how it functions in American society. After taking us step-by-step through the history of race in America, educator Frida Miles spoke about our 44th president. They brought up Barack Obama to illustrate how the meaning of whiteness and blackness have changed throughout U.S. history. Who knows that we had a black president, by the way? Anyone aware of that? So that ended racism, right? (laughs) Right? The most powerful man in the world was a black dude, right? (laughs) One man interjects here half-jokingly to say that actually Barack Obama is half Irish and half black. Thank you. Thank you. There were moments in our history where Barack Obama would not be considered half-white. He would be considered fully black. Because, huh? One drop. 
Do you think that still happens? Do you think people yes. are still? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have we heard of the, the one drop law in um, Georgia? Mm -hmm. yes. So just like we manipulate whiteness, we can manipulate blackness, mm -hmm. right? So I'm half Moroccan and half Mexican. In the 1940s, I would be considered white because I was half Mexican and North African people were considered white. I would have more rights, 1940s, I would have right, more rights as a white person than a Jewish white woman in Poland. Because at the time, Jewish people were not considered white. One way Miles explains racial privilege and other types of privilege is to say that whenever any one group has been oppressed or used for the economic gain of others, everyone else besides that group stands to benefit. Who here can tell me that they don't benefit from thinking that black people are property? Everyone but black people, right? Everyone in this room would benefit from black people being property except the black person in the room. Who benefits from the idea that women and children are always going to be free labor? Amen. Everyone who's not a female or a child, right? Who benefits from indigenous populations being eradicated? Everyone except indigenous populations. Who benefits from demanding that foreigners assimilate? All of us. Some of you not foreigners, right? Miles says looking at American history honestly and fully means acknowledging the privilege that comes from living in a country that was built on slavery. There's not a single person living in this country right now who does not benefit from the fact that we have free labor for 500 years. We're not that great of a country. We just had a really big trust fund that allowed us to do whatever we wanted. Throughout the workshop, Miles kept checking in with us, asking if anyone felt triggered, and just acknowledging that talking about race brings up difficult feelings. We'll come back again to Miles' workshop later this hour. Well, our next guest has dedicated her academic career to understanding the difficult emotions that come up when we talk about race. Dr. Cheryl Matias is an associate professor at the University of Colorado Denver's School of Education and Human Development. I spoke with Matias about her book called Feeling White, Whiteness, Emotionalities, and Education. In it, she writes about teaching mostly white teacher candidates who are hoping to do some good in urban classrooms filled with mostly students of color. Matias is a woman of color, and she says her courses are often derailed by emotional outbursts, which can come from even the most well-intentioned young people. Some things that typically happen inside teacher education is when we're trying to engage in an academic discussion about race, racism, and white supremacy, which is essential for this current climate, um, the emotional reactions become so overbearing that the conversation cannot be had. Um, this sometimes is displayed in students screaming. Um, they're very adamant about being colorblind. And when confronted with the realities of race, become very either emotionally distressed in sadness or defensiveness or anger, such that I've had students scream, I've never owned slaves. One came to me in office hours screaming that race is not an issue, she does not see race, and that, for goodness sakes, we already have Obama, Kobe, and Oprah. 
which was quite interesting because she miraculously saw race at that point in time. Um, I've had students who um, had so much difficulty in talking about it that they chose to drop the course or refuse to even finish the course. So that's it's been quite a journey to engage in this type of um, racially just teaching in the university. So these types of emotional responses, you know, I don't see race or I didn't own slaves. Why are you saying this to me? Um, how do these responses or this type of color blindness perpetuate violence? Well, there's a long, a long history for this. I mean, if we can't even engage in a discussion, how in the world do we think we can actually come to a common ground or even a common understanding? I mean, we teach as parents, you know, for example, we teach our children and we teach our other parents to talk about race, uh, particularly about drugs and sex, or else they're going to learn ideas about those two topics from other areas. Therefore, in the same vein, we need to be able to have a discussion about race in order to understand its dynamics and in understanding its dynamics can think of better ways to approach anti-racism. What is that like for you as as a woman of color to be the person, the professor to uh, basically invite invite those responses, which for some of your students might be the first time they've they've ever voiced their their shame, their guilt, whatever it may be. Right. You know, it's one thing I always say at the end of the day, I am a teacher and my job is to teach all all students, regardless of anything. And so I stay committed to that um, focus. Yet it's been quite taxing. I would say it is taxing in one respect with students, but it's taxing in a whole nother level when it comes to colleagues or superiors or, you know, the outside community. Um, in doing this work, I've gotten hate mail, I've gotten threats, I've gotten stalkers, and it's been very difficult to engage in all these emotional projections onto me for merely talking about a topic. So, you know, at the end of the day, I don't see it as much in the classroom because I think we are now beyond a colorblind epistemological moment. I've written about this, talking about we're in a, a return to the emboldening epistemology of whiteness, where it has become so skewed that some people are very aware that you cannot be colorblind in such a very a highly polarized, racialized society, while the other one is taking whiteness onto a whole new level. And I want to be very clear when I talk about whiteness, I'm not talking about white people particularly, although whiteness does inhabit a lot of people with white skin because they benefit mostly from a white supremacist society. I'm talking about the ideologies, the epistemologies, the behaviors, the rhetoric, the discourse, everything that goes along with individually upholding ideas and belief systems that ultimately uphold white supremacy. Just to sort of break down the academic language, what's what's a epistemology? Like the way that people think. Here, let me give an example. 
Epistemology is so ingrained. Sometimes when we think, we, we assume it to be as natural as a lion eats an antelope. And therefore, when we think of it in converse, it's sometimes almost dissonant for us to understand. Let me put it this way. I'm often asked around the nation, where am I, where am I from? I always respond with the truth of, I'm from Los Angeles, born and raised. The preceding question would be then, where are you really from? I know the expectation of the person who asks me this question. It's not to say that they're malicious. It's not to say that they're immoral or some kind of blatant, hateful racist. Rather, they may be engaging in whiteness as a norm, meaning they see me, they see that I'm not phenotypically white, that I have an, quote-unquote, exotic features that cannot, quote-unquote, be from here yet. I actually have very much features that are very similar to Native Indigenous peoples. So it's quite interesting how race operates in that moment. You'll notice how epistemology is normed when I come back to the questioner and say, well, where are you from? And if the person says, well, I'm from Ohio, and I question further, I said, no, no, no. Where are you really from? Are you from Ireland? How do you speak English so well? It becomes almost absurd to think in such a different way. That's why I said epistemology can be so normalized as a lion eats an antelope that sometimes we need to sit back and think, what are the norms, whose norms, and who does it comfort in engaging in these norms? So that's what I mean by epistemology. So one thing that struck me as I was reading uh, your book, Feeling White, is you continually remind readers, you know, that although the discomfort that white people, including I should say that I'm white, that white people feel when confronted with realities about racism, although that discomfort is real and needs to be addressed, um, you remind readers that that discomfort is nothing compared to the real fear and violence that people of color face under white supremacy. Why do you think it's so hard for white people to hold those two ideas in our minds at once? One theory is that whites since childhood have been raised into an ideology of whiteness and have been given conditional love in order to maintain in that status. This can be seen in the work of Thandika, who wrote a book, Learning to be White. And she talks very deeply about how white children are raised to become white in white communities, in white households. It's not to say that they're malicious or they're immoral or any depiction of what we popularize as a racist. It is how one child is socialized into the white community and believed to be colorblind and to love all people and to be moral beings. Yet when confronted with issues of race, for example, one, let's say, particularly female in a heterosexual relationship decides to bring her black boyfriend home, all of a sudden the discourse changes from we love all people, we don't see race, to coded languages such as, well, we're just concerned about how you might be perceived, or if it's a serious relationship, how the children might be perceived in a society. In doing so, a person, particularly a white person, will have conflicted messages about what race and what white morality is in society. So the person has to choose. 
it's quite taxing then when you try to bring it up, this whole, I guess if we were to go into biblical or Christian speak, um, to bear false witness for so long and then be called out on it becomes a very shameful process. In fact, Thondaka calls it a white ethnic shame process. It's a very deep um, discussion to be had, but yet when we, beyond our defenses, when we can look beyond that and figure out, well, if I really don't see this, why in the world am I reacting in such a very vehement way? And that's where the discussion needs to be had. In fact, I find it very unfruitful for diversity courses to tell whites to just, you know, get over your guilt and move on and just join the movement. In doing so, they really never get a chance to reconcile a lot of the unresolved issues they have regarding race. And therefore, sometimes, maybe unintentionally, maybe subconsciously, emotionally project on the people they they believe to be serving and helping. It's really striking to read an academic text that focuses so much on emotions. Um, why is that important to you to focus on emotions and even think deeply and write deeply about the meaning of love in teaching about anti-racism work? You know, emotions, there's so many things I can say. And the one, as a, as a scholar, as a female scholar, it's very difficult because the topic of emotions is often um, marginalized as something not worthy of interrogation. It's feminized. It's thought as unacademic. And oftentimes when the study of emotions is had in academia, it's changed from emotions to the study of affect, as if masculinizing the term will make it more relevant um, in the field. I strategically opt to use the word emotions because they are what propel or motivates people into their actions, beliefs, behaviors, and discourse. In fact, I'll be honest with you, when I came into Colorado, I moved here because I was asked to bring my expertise in whiteness and um, culturally responsive teaching and my focus on race and ethnic studies in education. And I was excited. I started teaching hip hop pedagogy and all of this wonderful um, aspects of teaching that I know K-12 students of color would enjoy. Yet I noticed that I couldn't really engage in that because some of the students could not see my own humanity. For one, I was one of the first ever faculty of color ever hired specifically to the urban community teacher education program at the university. So my mere presence was a shock for many and for me to talk so boldly, or what they would say unapologetically, which rubs me the wrong way, for many reasons. It implies you should be apologizing. Apologetic. To talk about something that people should be apologizing to me for act engaging in. Right. Um, I focus on emotions because I realize the emotional instability or becoming too emotionally unfettered was a strategic way to curtail and stop the learning about race, which is so needed in our society. It's such a trickle effect. 
We need our educators to be able to address the impacts of race and racism and white supremacy in our society so that they can freely engage in this academic discourse with our children, so that our children can grow up as adults and engage in these academic conversations rather than having knee-jerk or emotional reactions of that of a toddler. So the study of emotions is quite important because in a highly emotional state, as our society is in right now, we see the violence. We see people acting out in fear without actually having anything historically to prove that fear. And it's become so detrimental to our humanity that I refuse to castigate emotions as nothing more than a woman's whim to a period. There was a quote that stuck with me um... As you're discussing why it's so critical for white people to look at their own emotional reactions and to work through them, you give an example, which is you can't really talk about something as scary as death without considering there's going to be emotions like despair, um, survival, everything that goes along with that. So, of course, you say it would be wrong to, quote, assume that those same emotions are not also present when facing the historical realities of racially biased lynching, rapes, and the neo-institutionalized extermination of black men. And that's in, in some ways an obvious point, right? Like if we actually turn and look at these things, of course they're emotional. But it seems to me that half the problem or more than half the problem is that many people just aren't even willing to look at them. Absolutely. I mean, it's psychology or counseling 101. We first need to address our own emotions, correct? And oftentimes when we engage in whatever, from diversity talks to um, anti-racist workshops, you know, the focus of the dialogue is to try not to be emotional. Yet, talking about race is a really emotional aspect. Yet, I am very temper to say that it's an emotional topic for those who experience racism on a daily basis and have to survive. But emotions can be valid yet incorrectly placed when it comes to the emotionalities of whiteness. Meaning someone feeling so unfettered just by talking about race is not the same as someone who is traumatized by racist acts in their lives. I often say one cannot say that their fear of talking about race is on par to a black mother's fear of never seeing her child again. So that puts it in pers in, into perspective with regards to emotions and how we really need to investigate and identify them. The more important thing when it comes to racialized emotions, particularly that of white folks and the emotionalities of whiteness, is that beyond the surface level defensiveness, digging deeper down into those emotions, we need to understand what is undergirding them. Oftentimes when we have defensive mechanisms like, let's just say for an example, a woman finds out her husband cheated. The first response, of course, the defense mechanism is that of anger, sadness, whatever the case may be. But when one digs deeper down, 
into what undergirds those surface emotions, we can better understand the psychoanalytics of what's going on, meaning that woman might feel anger, which is valid. She might feel hurt, which is valid. Yet what is precipitating that deep down is her abandonment by someone she loved, the disloyalty of someone, the hurt of being fooled. So those are some deeper sentiments that lie at the crux of these surface emotionalities. So in the same vein, when I'm talking about emotions, and it gets difficult because when it comes to the point where white emotionalities are taking hold of the conversation, it needs to be understood as to why these, so, these emotions so routinely make their performance in very similar spaces. And until we get to the deeper psychoanalytics of what undergirds these surface level emotions, can we actually deal with the healing that needs to be had in order to continue the work of racial justice. That's Dr. Cheryl Matias speaking with producer Hannah Colton about why it's important to understand our own emotional reactions to conversations about race. Hear more of that conversation at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Again, look for the November 2018 episode. Our show today is about the violent legacy of whiteness and how we can address it. Back with more in a minute. This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Hannah Colton, and on today's episode, we're grappling with the violence of whiteness, a notion that has structured American society since its beginning, but that we don't talk about nearly enough. Up next, we hear more of producer Hannah Colton's conversation with John Bewin, the creator of a 14-part podcast series called Seeing White. In the final episode of the podcast, I believe you're talking with your co-host or collaborator, Chandraya Kumaniga, and you're saying all it takes to uphold this society that has been founded on white supremacy is for, you know, quote unquote, good white people to go about their lives like business as usual. Can you explain that a little? Yeah. And I think to complete what I said, I think I said... Um... All it takes for our white supremacist society to perpetuate itself is for good white people to go about our lives being good non-racists. Because the way that we typically think about race in America is as a, it's a problem of personal attitudes and personal behaviors. 
So the question that we're constantly uh, preoccupied with is, is that individual person a racist or not? Am I a racist or not? Meaning, you know, am I a member of the KKK? Uh, do I use the N-word? Am I mean to people of color? You know, stuff like that, right? But that's not what racism is. It's not that those things don't matter at all. They do. But it's much more a matter of a structural systemic situation that would take a more fundamental change in our institutions. So if I go, so in other words, if I go about my life smiling at the black people that I encounter in my day-to-day -day life and, um, you know, ha having an occasional dinner with a black person or not, or let's say even, you know, not, not hesitating to send my kids to school with children of color, that's all fine, but that's not going to change the structure of our society. We need deeper changes than that. What's a takeaway for listeners in terms of how to take steps towards uh, systemic change on racial justice? Yeah, I think probably the biggest and most tangible things that need to happen probably need to happen at a governmental level. Government policy, the way our institutions function, you know, so just things like, uh, you know, the criminal justice system or what Chandrai Kumanyika called our so-called criminal justice system, the deep structural inequities in who gets policed and who gets punished and so on and so forth. For example, or the education system, the way that we allow ourselves to have this deeply unequal and unequal in a racialized way education system, right? So those kinds of big institutions in our society really need to be rebuilt. But then there are also things like that we consider in the last episode of the of the series, like reparations, um, or um, things that would help address in the present um, the deep inequalities in in wealth that come out of our history. So a job guarantee, or Sandy Darity, who works at Duke here, the Economist has an idea about a baby bonds proposal where children would be given a bond, basically kind of a trust fund. And that would be, you know, if you were historically, like if you were a descendant of enslaved black people, you would get a bigger trust fund than if you're a comfortable white person, right? So these will sound to a lot of people like radical ideas, but if you were really going to make steps to, and actually a job guarantee now, uh, which actually polls quite well, meaning that it would be sort of like the, um, WPA in, in the Great Depression, where anybody who wants a job and can't find one, the government would provide one. These are big, expensive programs. We do a lot of big, expensive things, including a trillion-dollar tax cut that we say we don't have the money for, but we find it, right? So if we wanted to really address the deep inequalities that have come from this history and that persist, um, these are some of the things that we, we could be looking at. So from an individual standpoint, it becomes a matter of getting yourself educated and then maybe thinking, all right, the next time I hear a, uh, a potential presidential candidate talk about a job guarantee, I'm not going to just roll my eyes and say, that's crazy. We can't afford that. I might actually think about whether that's something that might be worth supporting. John Bewin, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure, Hannah. Thanks for having me on.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio. I'm Hannah Colton. Let's return for a few minutes to Albuquerque to the Center for Peace and Justice, where educator Frida Miles spoke to about a dozen people at a workshop about whiteness and anti-racism in October of 2018. This tape comes from toward the end of the workshop. So we are people who are committed to making sure that this thing stops, right? Are we? Is that a safe assumption? Like we're committed? to making sure that the next time a black person runs for office, our question is that they're qualified, not what are they, right? So how do we do that? How do we do that? We address the fact that whiteness equals white supremacy. We address the fact that from the get-go, the idea of whiteness was created in this country in order to establish me as literally a person with God-given rights to make you property. So how do we stop that? I'll pause here to give you a little context. Earlier, Miles had told us that just a couple of hours before the workshop, they received a death threat. Someone had called their cell phone and made it clear they knew when and where the workshop was happening and threatened to kill them. It was really scary, but they decided to go on with the workshop anyway. And as Miles explained, That's just one day in the life of a non-gender conforming person of color who chooses to speak out about white supremacy. And I always tell people, oppression, it's like drowning. You're sinking and everything around you, it's trying to kill you. It's not okay for me to have to stop my death in order to make you feel better. That would be like someone drowning, telling the person that's about to throw them the lifesaver Saver, um, how are you? Are you okay? Is your arm hurting? Because I know you threw me the lifesaver and it's, you know, it takes a lot of work, right? No, it's not okay for that. At one point, an older white woman brought up a question. She said whenever she points out something about race or racism to her liberal white friends, it never goes over well. She wondered, was she doing it wrong? Was there any way to make that conversation more successful? Some trick to make it less awkward? And Frida Miles said basically, no, calling out oppression is always going to be uncomfortable. And my answer is, I'm glad that you're not feeling comfortable because your discomfort does not feel like it feels to get a death threat at 3.30. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tell, sorry. That's what I tell people. Your discomfort right now does not feel like a bullet through the head, which is what's happening to transgender women of color in this nation. And, and I'm sorry, but my answer is always, I'm glad you're not okay. And I hope you go home and you can't sleep. And I hope that in 10 years, you still can't sleep. Mm. until you do something about it. When we see an act of racism, whether it's physical violence or a verbal microaggression, Miles said the response is simple. The first thing to do, they said, is stand up for the person who's being harmed. What we do is we focus on the person that at that moment is the most vulnerable. Thank you. And hopefully somebody recognizes that I'm still vulnerable, and then they stand up for me, and then somebody recognizes that they are. And then eventually the whole room is showing that person 
who is the oppressed person, that we're on their side. Because it's really unfair when one person has to do all the work. It's really unfair when someone's drowning and we say, oh, oxygen, do you really need oxygen? Come on, girl, like, do you really need to breathe? <laughs> right? It's really, really oppressive to demand that those that are immediately dealing with oppression have to justify their existence and justify our lack of action. So that's how we fight against it. That was educator and activist Frida Miles speaking at a workshop in Albuquerque in October 2018. You can hear the rest of that workshop about whiteness at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Our other guest today is Dr. Cheryl Matias, an associate professor at the University of Colorado Denver's School of Education and Human Development. She's a woman of color, and earlier this hour we heard about some of the strong reactions she gets from mostly white students and colleagues. I spoke with Matias about her book called Feeling White. You write about how having these hard conversations around race and sticking with them, even when they feel awful, is really acting out. You call it humanizing love. Can you say a little more about what that type of love looks like? You know, it's kind of <laughs> to, to make light of a topic that at least anyone can understand. It's kind of like that girlfriend who's able to tell you the honest truth about your genes and say, no, that makes your butt look big. I've kind of want that straightforward type of love, even if it sometimes is not neat and pretty and sometimes is contentious. I often ask my students if they've ever been in a relationship with a partner, a friend, a cousin, a relative of any sort. And I ask them, has there ever been a time where you got into a really huge argument with that individual? Many people always raise their hands. Of course, they've gone into an argument. Then I asked them, how many of you stuck at the table and really talked it out, even when maybe the conversation lasted all the way until the early morning and there was screaming and crying and sometimes there was accusation, but none of you left the table. You wanted to engage in this conversation with that person because at the end of the day, although you're angry at whatever the person may have done to you or have slighted you, you ultimately love them so much and that is why it hurts. And many of them raise their hand. I always ask them at the end, how is your relationship with that person after that long night of discussion? Many of the people, they respond with, I have never felt closer to a person because we stuck it out together. When I'm teaching in this way and I have to engage in tough topics, I feel the same way. I have a level of commitment to provide a more racially just society for my own children that regardless to the pain and the dehumanizing of some of the students or, what, or audience members or hate mail givers, I stay focused at the task at hand because that is what needs to be had for someone to learn and listen. Regardless to whether or not they stay at the table, I stay steadfast and steady. And so when I talk about a humanizing love, it means I refuse to give up. What are your thoughts on how deconstructing these emotions can work in other realms of our society, 
media, you know, social media, politics? What are you thinking about these days? Oh, absolutely. Emotions runs at the heart of humanity. It becomes the fabric of who we are and how we run our society. So from politics to social work, I mean, social work, for example, is another field where you have a predominantly white force supporting the needs of predominantly folks of color. And so these emotions of whiteness can show up in the same vein. Let me just talk about teaching. You'll get teachers who always will say, well, I want to give back to the communities knowing that I was afforded privileges. That's great. But the question that is not being asked is, well, what have you taken from these communities such that you now feel guilty enough to give back? What is it that you have taken? So a lot of this stems from emotions, from politics right now with the atrocities of these murders. We're talking about the continual terrorism on Jewish people, continual terrorism and extermination of black people, the continual terrorism and genocide of native peoples, and the increasingly xenophobic racism for Latinos and Asian Americans. I mean, this is nothing new. And the way it works is that people play on the fears of human beings without truly understanding the hearts. And therefore, it becomes the most vital aspect that we need to engage with. Because if we don't, we let fear consume our minds and our hearts and our souls without ever having any shred of evidence or proof or history to back it up. So I believe in order to make a more, I guess you would say, logical or rational decision about humanity, one needs to first understand their own emotions. Dr. Matias, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. University professor Dr. Cheryl Matias spoke with Peace Talks producer Hannah Colton. You can hear the complete interview that Hannah did with her and our other guest John Bewin and the entire whiteness workshop that you heard some of on our November 2018 episode page at our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can also get to other resources that we mentioned on today's program at our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. We also have partial transcripts there and pictures too, and a donate button that you can click on to help us continue our work with a tax-deductible donation, all at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from people just like you, we also have support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Our theme music is written and performed by Ali Adelman. I'm Paul Ingalls with Hannah Colton, thanking you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.